Istanbul was a disappointment from the start. The airline lost his only check bag, the taxi driver overcharged him and nearly killed both of them in the race to the hotel, a seemingly pleasant establishment in the tourist district, but full of curious businessmen and female entourages. Peter had to make do with the clothes on his back and a traveling change of items he had stowed away in his carry-on luggage. Nothing to be done, the hotel was already paid for by his travel host and central to his meetings. None of the guests were in the least been interested in Peter's comings and goings. Thus, while they appeared annoyed by life, they were politely disinterested in the American engineer and scientist. All was as he had expected. Preliminary matters required that he check in with his host, a minor deputy director of natural resources in the government of Istanbul, someone who carried title but little influence and even less esteem. From what Peter could gather from their phone call, the morrow's meeting was on schedule, in place at the deputy director's office building, specifically a conference in the library, which would be closed due to the roundtable discussion to follow. For Peter, it sounded like a long day full of translators working to keep the communication moving amid bureaucrats posturing among experts trying to establish a hierarchy between their superiors or intellects, all smoking to excess. Little would be accomplished. Already tired from anticipation, Peter hung up the phone with the airlines to inform them where to bring his items. He needed a better set of clothes and perhaps a bite to eat, hence he opted for one of the many enclosed street bazaars available to both tourists and local alike. It would be fun, he thought, and perhaps he could pick up a trinket for Liliana. He had time to kill and certainly food from Istanbul's palate-pleasing dishes would improve his attitude. In the bazaar, the salesmen spoke openly and directly with befriending cries, as if they needed Peter to help them. I have too much inventory today, or special today, they shouted in crude English as they hawked their wares. Peter took note of the amusing symphony of voices which could be heard in malls, bazaars, and stalls anywhere on the globe. People selling, people watching other people, some people buying. Peter purchased tea from a walking vendor and kept moving. He was looking for food and perhaps a bauble for Liliana, but he was suspicious of the sales talk. His strategy to avoid the flim-flam necessitated that he stick to his expertise in mining geology. Indeed, in mineralogy, he could tell a real item from a fake. He was aware of replicas, ersatz antiquities, phony rugs, simulated precious stones, and more, but he would trust his skills in his own fields above his periodic experience in other commodities. Hence, one eye kept a lookout for a trustful restaurant, and the other eye for a gemstone dealer. Somewhere, music blared in a shop immediately off the main enclosed thoroughfare, an ancient city block turned modern. As it was safe to venture off without losing the security of the inclusion, Peter glanced to one side or another until he discovered a lapidary shop. Within moments, he found himself picking up stones, rolling unpolished rocks in his fingertips to identify this or that mineral, semi-precious stone or otherwise. The shopkeeper said nothing, as he calculated from Peter's demeanor that Peter knew something of his wares and that Peter's type of customer would make the offer. The merchant, Usuf, merely had to wait and after a few words of introduction, ascertain Peter's origin, nationality, and economic class to set the price. Thus he smiled and stood by. 
Trays of thin paper in the glass cases in front held attractive stones, but nothing of interest for a young woman. Peter pulled himself farther inside the stall and stepped to the right of the shopkeeper who nodded and asked if he could show him something, perhaps for himself, for a child, for a girlfriend or wife. At the mention of the latter, Peter's brow raised slightly, and Usuf, the storekeeper, knew he had a sale. It didn't take Usuf long to point the way to the rows of quality merchandise, which he kept at the more guarded rear of the store, filled with long glass cases organized by stouter, painted, cardboard rows. Usuf flipped a hidden switch to ignite the track lighting. When the halogen light bulbs illuminated the displays, the cases appeared as miniature theaters for stationary actors, exhibited in want of an audience. In a thick accent, Usuf elucidated that the assortment was, from left to right, two open cases of semi-precious gemstones and one locked case of precious stones which he did not display, such as jade from China and diamonds from South Africa. All were uncut. However, he vaguely hinted he could locate cut gems for the foreigner for a fee. Last, apart from the back display, towards the front were four cases of crystals, garnets, and lesser stones, all arranged according to luster, clarity, and hardness. Water of the first and second, Usuf interposed, pointing to the locked case of stones next to him. Here, he pointed elsewhere, some cat eyes and aquamarines. Peter realized Usuf was perhaps throwing out a question, and he nodded back, indicating he understood the concept of clarity, one of the four C's in gemstones, color, cut, clarity, and carrot. The collection was somewhat remarkable. And while Peter had seen better select lapidary retailers in Vienna, he applauded the storekeeper for his assembled assortment. Unfortunately for Usuf, the light in the case also illuminated his backroom lab, which Peter caught from the corner of his eye. The lab suggested something other than complete honesty in the merchant. Peter noticed tools for heating stones, which all lapidarists do, but he also noted containers of colored wax and oils used for filling in cracks of lesser rocks, which utensils typically belie the high quality its owners profess. Peter ignored the pretense as his eye rested on a solitary case of pearls. The moment he saw, he knew. Only a natural pearl would do for a human pearl. His hesitation revealed his serious interest, which Usuf quickly noticed. Usuf relocated himself closer to the longish box to better flaunt his exhibit of prized gems from Neptune's Deep. While not stones, pearls were sold with natural gemstones due to buyer's interests. However, as Peter studied the pearls, captivated as he was, he had stepped out of his geological expertise in stones and stepped into an amateur-only proficiency. Immediately, Usuf knew, again from practice, that the choice of a pearl by a man would indicate a woman recipient. After all, pearls can possess feminine beauty. These are of the best quality, his fat finger pointed at the last half of the selection. With prices, I think, you will find nowhere else. Usuf paused and boasted. I bring them in from the oysterman directly. No middleman. Peter thought it could be true as the prices did seem rather low. Yet none were mounted on a hook or fastener. Peter hesitated, unsure of a naked pearl as a gift. And see, Usuf masterfully pointed out with a flourish of movements, as if reading his customer's mind. The pearls are easy to mount, and here, gracefulness takes wings. Within a second, the shopkeeper had simulated a mounted pearl by tagging it with a catch and fastener he had magically produced out of a velveteen box from behind the display case. Indeed, it was lovely now, fit for the neck of any woman loved by her man. How a single pearl would be lovely around Liliana's fair neck. 
Peter romanticized as he envisioned her soft skin and the luster of the tiny globe. Usuf's shop carried round ones, semi-round, oval, button, or made pearls used for earrings and more. Their colors ranged from pink, white, silver cream, some bluish, and one black. Nothing was imitation. Nothing was cheap mother of pearl compositions. Cultured, Peter asked. But yes, a natural pearl would not be at these low prices. Cultured was not a problem, as only an x-ray could determine the difference between that and a natural one. Indeed, the luster, color, and surface quality were equally the same across the selections. The possibility of a pearl for Liliana excited Peter, ready to make something of his time in the shop. He pointed at several pearls to ask prices, which Usuf gave up reluctantly, as a good salesman should. Yet all were above his wallet. Then Peter espied a spectacular specimen at the back, fully iridescent with elongated pear shape. That one, Peter smiled. What is that one? Usuf pretended not to notice, but Peter clearly drew his attention to the pear-shaped gray-silver pearl with a slight bell end sitting at the edge. Um, he hesitated. Is this for a wife or girlfriend? He asked with some sense of obligation. Usuf believed in superstitions, and especially the tales regarding blighted pearls. Indeed, he half believed in Neptune. The question struck Peter as out of place. Indeed, Usuf's inquiry into Peter's personal affairs upset him. However, Peter's fault was that he had no cognitive grasp of his own assessment of his relationship with Liliana, and thus his reply came off a bit dumbfounded. She was not his wife, certainly, but neither his girlfriend as well. She was Liliana, the hope he clung to. Indeed, he yearned for her intimacy. Peter fumbled and answered, neither. Usuf, the player, swore quietly to himself as he had incorrectly guessed Peter's intention, but it did not matter, for at that pronouncement, Usuf, the seller, smiled and quoted Peter the price. It was perfect. Usuf answered more of Peter's questions about the origin, salt water, and other qualities, as Usuf attached a clasp to the thinner conical end which became the top of the pearl. Peter beamed. He pictured the lovely trifle on Liliana's neck, draping down from its delicate gold chain. Usuf set the clip to the pearl with adhesive, instructed Peter to not disturb it in its container for 24 hours. Peter paid the money and gently palmed the small trophy in its new box so as not to spoil its fragile state. He was almost out of the shop when he turned to the shopkeeper and asked the shape of the pearl. Does it have a name? Yes, Usuf explained. Some call this particular one the Tear of Persia. Peter thanked his host, took two steps into the busy bazaar, and turned to make his way down the main thoroughfare. As Usuf's words hit him, he saw the plant. He envisioned Liliana's hands caressing it back to life. He reflected on his relationship with her, the rainy coffee date, their trips together, and the recent kiss. However, she was not yet his girlfriend. Tear of Persia, he mused as he caught the remarkable coincidence and whistled back to his hotel, mindless of his empty stomach.